Now, you're in the WOR Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy. Time now for our Mets slash Patriots roundtable as uh, we're joined by Tim Healy of Newsday, Anthony DeComo, MLB.com, and of course hanging out with Dan Grasso all night long here. How we doing, gents? First day after the season. And I spend it with you. I know. That's a mistake, isn't it? How we doing, Tim? Tim's yeah, trying oh, to plug his okay. headphones all right. in. He's, Tim's, he's struggling a little bit. Tim's got to work out this all worked He's new out. to this radio business. He doesn't have to do this <laughs> on the uh, Newsday Forum. Now, right. now I'm here. It's easier, I'm here. it's easier with the game going on and Howie and Josh in the booth. <laughs> this is a whole other animal when you have to come in here. Well, first of all, thanks so much, guys, for you know, coming all the way into the city and uh, joining us here to uh, to talk some New York Mets after a 77-win season. Where would you even begin with this year? Do we do we acknowledge the eleven and one start, or should we spare everybody that much time? Acknowledge everything. It all happened, right? <laughs> I mean, if you had asked me two months ago, would the Mets win seventy seven games? I would have said, of course not. I didn't think they would come close to that. So you have to acknowledge the good beginning. You have to acknowledge the good end, and of course, you have to acknowledge the absolute disaster that took place in between. And it was a disaster. I, I compared it to like a donut yesterday. You had you know the good start, the good finish, but it was a very thin donut because it was a a big area <laughs> in the middle there that was absolutely terrible with one of the worst months in franchise history in the month of of June. Was it? Was there anything, Tim, that led to just the quick demise of this team over those uh, couple of months, specifically June? Well, you talk about June, one of the worst months in franchise history, and. There was a stretch there where they were averaging maybe a run a day. And that really sunk them real fast, as good as their starting pitching was. And somewhere in that month is when the starting pitching started getting really good among the best in the league. But the offense just <laughs> couldn't carry them or even you know, put up a little bit to make it worth anything. They could never click. They could just never click on all the cylinders. The, the, the offense was definitely a problem early in the season. The bullpen was a big problem throughout the season, but especially late later in the season. Uh, but yeah, the offense, like, all these guys wind up looking okay in the end because Conforto did so well down the stretch. Right. And McNeil came up and did so well down the stretch. Nimmo did so well with the exception of a period in the middle of the season. Rosario looked great down the stretch. So at the end of the day, you look it down and they looked okay, but that wasn't the case. And just looking at those end numbers was not the tale of what actually happened in the season. There were huge stretches in the season where those guys weren't producing at all. And that's why you play 162 games. I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, that's why you take everything into account. You have your ups. You have. To, I mean, think of the team that just we were talking about won the division tonight in the Dodgers. Early on in the season, they were a disaster. And mm-hmm. this looked like this was going to be the year where they don't win the division. And they ultimately collected themselves. I never believed that, by the way. You still thought that they had it all the way. <laughs> yeah, I did. I remember I, I was doing a show, one of my shows on uh, MLB. Dodgers were 10 under 500 in May. I think they were like 16 and 26 or something like that. We had Dave Roberts on, weekly spot. And I remember they're getting ready to play the Washington Nationals. They, everything okay? Yeah. I mean, they were in really, really bad shape. Remember, Kershaw was banged up. You didn't think that this was going to happen. And, you know, give them credit. They, they got it together. And, and that's why I think when you look back on this Mets season, granted, there's a lot of work to be done. Still, they finished with a losing record. But I think from a fan standpoint, guys, you take a little bit more optimism from the final couple of months. 
Anthony mentioned all these guys that perform so well down the stretch. I think that gives you a little bit of hope going into the offseason, does it not? Well, there are different ways to get to 77 and 85. And before I say that, I, I should say I believe the Dodgers had it the whole way. I also believe the Nationals had it the whole way. So, <laughs> a lot of people my culpa. <laughs> right. But there are different ways to get to 77 and 85. And if I think there's a lot more pessimism, for example, in Philadelphia right now, where they look like a playoff team for most of the summer and then absolutely crash landed in September versus where the Mets were at where you know you get to a similar place in the standings by the end of the year but with a nice final six weeks a nice final eight weeks I think it was actually it, it winds up leaving at least a better taste in your mouth even though let's not just paper over the fact that there sure. are problems here that need to be fixed Tim Haley Newsday what's real about some of the things that went right over the last six weeks or so well I think the starting pitching is Probably not sub-3 ERA good, but the starting pitching is pretty good. The way I look at it is you're, you are approximately what your record says you are. So for the Mets, they're a losing team. You know, There's no getting around that. Heading into the offseason, yes, there are obvious issues. The bullpen, center field and catcher, a question mark. Maybe second base is a question mark. But you can look at all the positives. Sure, Conforto was great the second half. McNeil was very good. The starting pitching was great. But every year, there are things that come up that you would never expect. If I told you in April that some guy named Jeff McNeil was going to be actually one of the best players in the majors for the final third of the season, you'd pro- you'd have to Google Jeff McNeil, and then you'd think I'm crazy. So when you talk about how good the Mets are heading into the winter, things like that, I don't weigh the second half too heavily. I look at the whole. So you take it with a grain of salt, then. You're not necessarily sure. buying in with a lot of these guys. And, and that's a fair point, and... I think, guys, a good place to start here when you're like evaluating this season as a whole and what they're going to do moving forward, I think you got to go right at the top with Mickey Calloway. I mean, he's he kind of learned along the way. You know, there were some gaffes early in the season. We know that. And he wasn't really acclimated to National League Baseball and the things that are entailed there when you are the manager. But do you think, and a lot of it is going to be hinging on who the general manager is and what that person decides to do in, in the manager's office, but do you think that he deserves at least another year here, albeit with a new boss. Well, you're asking, I, I'm a person who does not believe the manager matters all that much. Once you have the winning formula in place, yes, I want the right guy at the helm. But to me, it's much more about personnel and it's much more about the, about the decisions that are being made at a front office level. But to answer your question specifically about Mickey Calloway, does he deserve a little bit of a longer leash? I would say probably, yeah, actually. I think he made a ton of mistakes this year and you would hope that he learns from them. But if you hire him at the beginning of this season, you can't fire him now just because he had a 77 win season. I think you have to see it through at least through the beginning of next season and see where he's at. But we- politics get in the way, guys, right? And, and and what I mean by that is he was hired by a different regime. Well, and- you're asking me based on merit. And based on merit, merit. I think, I think he, he deserves at least a chance to keep going. Now, if that's going to prevent you from getting the GM that you want, from getting the GM that has the vision that you think is the right vision going forward, then no, I don't think any manager really is worth that. So if it's going to stop you from getting one of the top GMs in the game, which I think they're going to struggle to, to kind of lure these guys anyway. But if that's going to stop you, then sure, find a new manager. Let the new GM bring in his guy. But in terms of his actual performance on the field, I think it was okay enough that, that you know he doesn't deserve to be fired over it. I thought that it took him a long time to learn the National League rules and just how different a game it is. Even Double late switching. this season, he said it felt like a weekend off when they were up in Boston and had the DH. This is a career player, coach in the American League, and it certainly seemed to me early on those first few months that 
there were issues with some what you would think to be basic moves, Tim. Well, I think the takeaway there is that having the pitcher hit is a bad idea, but maybe that's a whole other debate. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I will get that in there any time I can. Well, and the Mets, they let pitchers hit. Pitcher this year? Did, that, did something happen to a Mets pitcher this year that was pretty noteworthy? Jacob DeGrom. Not, did it? Yeah, I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, how about, um, what else, Tony, do you think of when you think of mistakes that Callaway might have had early, and how do you think he came out of some of those things at the end? I think his expectations in reality, just with New York and what the job entails in this market, were, were totally divergent at first. And I think it took him a long time, and I'm not sure he's there yet, to be honest, in terms of how to deal with a media of this size, how to deal with all of the people who want a piece of his time and all of the people who are going to, frankly, criticize him, even at times when, when the team is playing well. And I don't think he, he's been able to jive that fact in his mind that, you know, Aaron Boone got a ton of criticism this year as manager of the Yankees for a team that won over 100 games. Uh, you know, Boston, the Red Sox, I mean, go up there, listen to their talk radio. How often do you hear them get criticized? And they're one of the best teams in the history of baseball record-wise. So it's going to happen in a market of this size, and I don't think he's been able to wrap his mind around that. And I think he's going to have to if he wants to succeed going forward because that's not going to stop, even if they get out to a 20-1 and record next year. I don't remember him pumping back too much at criticism maybe there was one press conference where he snapped at a reporter who was asking about his uh, I believe his bullpen decisions in June when this things is the really way going baseball bad. works this is how it works. well of course yeah. of course but what what did you notice where you think that it, it was it, it is something that affected him or or that you noticed he didn't respond well to the criticism I'd say that was the most prominent example but the, I think and look part of this is a perspective because you come from Terry Collins, who's open and honest with everything, and you get to a more buttoned-up guy in Mickey Calloway, and you're going to get a different perspective on things. But, uh, you know, just the day-to-day being there, the comments that you hear from him and, and things of that nature, the way he conducts himself in his press conferences, the way he can be surprised by questions and things of that nature, yeah, I, th- I think just on the whole, he wasn't prepared for what it would entail. That doesn't mean he's not qualified to do it because I think he's a good public speaker. I think he has those leadership skills. I think he can convey his message. I just think he wasn't totally ready for what it would be in this animal compared to, say, Cleveland. And we'll get some behind-the-scenes stories of some of the notable days this season, including when Sandy Alderson stepped aside, some of the the key losses and and victories that sticks out, and, of course, uh, Jacob deGrom's huge year uh, as well as we chat with Anthony DeComo, MLB.com, Tim Healy of Newsday. It's Pete McCarthy, Dan Grasso here in the Sports Zone on The Voice of New York, 710-WOR. 11. 710 WOR. You're in the sports zone with Pete McCarthy. Uh, the Mets are uh, wrapping up a 77 win season, a second consecutive losing season, the eighth time in 10 years they've been south of the 500 mark. Didn't have a World Series appearance in that time otherwise, but it has not been the sustainable run of success that the Mets obviously hoped for. As we uh, welcome you back here, Pete McCarthy with Dan Grassa, and we're joined in studio right now, Anthony DeComo covering the Mets for MLB.com and Tim Healy of Newsday. And, of course, it was on Sandy Alderson to build this sustainable winner, Tim, and one of the memorable days of this year uh unfortunately it was june 26th when uh he announced he'd be taking a, a leave of absence what, what do you remember about 
all that went on and, and give us kind of a behind the scenes view of, of, of what that day was like. Well, for me, the, the first thing I think of is about a week and a half, I think it was before that, because they had that Sunday night game against the Yankees and then make all those roster moves, cut Adrian Gonzalez, bring up Dominic Smith, a couple other more minor moves. And nobody from the front office talks about it. And the next day is a Monday off day before an Atlanta series. And nobody from the front office is available to talk about it. So that that made me wonder, you know, what is Sandy doing that he's so busy that he can't lend 10 minutes on a conference call with some reporters? So I I asked a a Mets person, like, hey, hope you haven't seen Sandy around a lot. Hope everything's okay. I know the history there. And they said, yeah, you know, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And as far as that person knew at the time, everything was fine. And then next thing you know, later in the month is the day he announces, you know, he's stepping away. Uh, due to the return of his cancer, and uh, you know that that was a surprise. Uh, that day, the clubhouse closed to reporters a few minutes early, and that struck me as a little odd. But I didn't really think anything of it. Then we go into the press conference room, and there are two chairs and I think two water bottles there. So that that's different. Uh, and then you know you knew something was coming. Then he comes in and makes that announcement. I wasn't expecting that though. And having covered this team for as long as you have, Tony, and how. How much of a changeup was that? A shakeup was that for this organization to to lose Sandy, who had been in that role for for years? Yeah, well, from an actual day to day, like what goes on in baseball operations, it wasn't an enormous shock to the system because he had John Rico, who's been there, who preceded him in the organization. Obviously, J.P. Ricciardi and he have worked, and Sandy have worked together for a long, long time. Uh, Omar Minaya was back by that point, who have deep roots in the Mets organization. So like, those guys could go on, and they all had their roles, and Sandy Alderson on, on most stuff had been delegating a lot to those guys anyway. So it, it's not as if it paralyzed the organization what they could do in terms of trades and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it was a shock to the system just because Sandy Alderson was so well-respected as a human being uh, from his military background to everything he did with the Oakland A's and coming up through Major League Baseball and just all these bullet points on his resume, he was he was so well respected and he commanded attention and, and you know on the rare instances when he you know made that force known of personality, he could be kind of a larger than life guy. So there was immense respect for him and I think everybody uh, was kind of touched by that. And, and the other thing that stands out to me from that day is that. You know, Sandy Ellison's a, a private critic, a private person. He, he's, you know, he's self-critical to a certain extent, but you don't hear a lot of his opinions on, on you know, himself or anything along those lines. And then when he said he was asked if he would consider coming back, you know, if his health allows, and he said, I don't think, my, you know, my job performance warrants it. That yeah. to me struck me as, as, a, as a big thing in the day. Yeah, that that was pretty eye-opening and... You know, the team wasn't going very well at that point, and you wondered if there were going to be changes in store in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I remember that day, as a matter of fact, I, I was at, at SNY, and we got tipped off. And this is, you know, you would have thought that at SNY we'd have known exactly what was going on. And we just got word that there's going to be a press conference. I, remember, I don't know what time it was exactly, but just be on the lookout. There's going to be a press conference. So we were looking on the camera feed and everything. And as Tim was saying, you had the two chairs there, the two water bottles. So you're speculating it's not maybe just a player or something like that. There could be something going on. But I don't think anybody bargained for what exactly it was with Sandy's health being the cause for concern there. And it's funny because it seems like that happened so long ago 
But now as we're just drumming it all up again, it does kind of hit home as to what exactly, you know, such a serious nature that it was here. And, and you hope for his well-being more than anything else. And it's going to be a big offseason for this franchise because Jeff Wilpon made it sound like over the weekend that, guess what? These three guys that kind of held down the fort, they're not going to be given real serious consideration to be the guy full-time. No, and it's been three months since this happened, and, and still they're just now it seems beginning in a lot of ways that the search for a general manager, but uh, it was, I, I thought you asked a, a real good question yesterday, Anthony, to uh, Jeff Wilpon, the Mets COO. Anthony Tacoma, MLB.com. Uh, Jeff, in the past, with the exception of, of Ioannis Cespedes, I guess, over the past 10 years, you haven't really shopped at the top of the free agent market. Um, how much of that was a recommendation of the old regime, and, and how much do you see yourself sticking with that versus changing and shopping in those areas this year? I think it was a total recommendation, number one, and number two, until we have somebody on board, you know, I really don't want to answer those questions. We'll come back to you with more information once we get somebody and we lay out a plan. But until I know what the new GM is going to, going to suggest as a plan and we hire that person to, to go forward with that plan, it'd be premature to answer that. But a total recommendation, and, and not only for that question, but... Uh, with payroll questions later, with the, the analytics department being as sparse as it is for the Mets. I mean, Tim, in your reporting, because it, it doesn't make much sense to me why any general manager would say, hey, we don't need more resources when they talk to ownership. I think listening to a lot of those answers yesterday with a heavy dose of skepticism is fair and would serve fans well. Uh with the analytics department as an example, uh, I think it's just three full-timers they have in there. That's very small in baseball today. Um, there there was a desire from the front office to add more resources to that department, to other departments. With Sandy. With with the Sandy Alderson regime, uh, administration, whatever you want to call it. I, I think Jeff Wilpine yesterday called it the previous administration, like it's the presidency, mm-hmm. but... Uh, there was a desire on that part to have more. And I think if you say to the person in charge, hey, you can have a lesser amount of money or a more amount of, a larger amount of money to spend on your product, it's always going to be the more money. Look, I don't doubt that, that you know, the Sandy Alderson regime said, no, I don't want to sign J.D. Martinez at a nine-figure deal. That's not what that baseball operations department was about, was doing those those enormous mega deals, but I highly doubt if you had gone to Sandy Alderson and said, you know, we want to hire two more analytics guys, he would have said no, especially when you look right. at the successes that teams like the Yankees are having with analytics departments that, I don't know, might be about 5,000 people right now in the Bronx up there. So, yeah, I, I think you have to take a lot of that press conference with a grain of salt and with some skepticism. And even, you know, about the assistant GMs, about John Rico and about Omar Minaya and and J.P. Ricciardi and, and Mickey Calloway also, you know, in one breath, Jeff Wilpon said it will be up to the next GM and we want to give him full autonomy. In the next breath, Jeff Wilpon said, I want all those guys back. So, you know, it, it can't be both. And I think that's something the Mets are going to have to hash out if they want to do this thing the right way in terms of hiring the next GM. I didn't get the sense yesterday, though, that the payroll is going to jump up in a big way. Anytime soon. Did did you notice any The luxury tax is not going to be a threat. I don't (laughs) think we have to go there. Was there any change in in that (laughs) aspect of the discussion? Even if they're willing to give all the power to this new baseball person that's going to come in, uh, will the resources be more plentiful? Look, 
you're gonna have you're gonna have to give raises to Jacob Degrom and to Michael Conforto and Noah Syndergaard. A lot of the guys who are under contract, whether it's uh, Jay Bruce or some others, are going to be paid more next season than they were this season. So the payroll is going to jump just based on that. But yeah, I, I don't get the sense they're going to go out there and all of a sudden spend two hundred million dollars. Which, if you really want to go and fix the areas that you need to fix, the bullpen, which I think they need, probably bring in two big arms. I agree. And At catching, least. I think you need to go after one of those top two guys. Those things that I just mentioned alone are going to lift your payroll a significant amount. So are they going to do that? I can't say definitively no, but history shows us probably not the whole way. You want nice things, it's going to cost you money, right? I mean, you want to you want to be able to bring in some of these marquee guys. And look, no, none of us expect them to go out there and be major players for Bryce Harper, Manny Machado. And they and don't whatnot. need to, to be and honest. And they don't need to. You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, I, I'm with Anthony here. And if you were asking me what I think is the area that is the most concerning and needs to be addressed for this team going into the offseason, it's the bullpen. you got to start there. I mean, plain and simple. You, you start to see that when healthy, I think some of these bats are going to be able to carry their way catching position notwithstanding but if you have a good starting rotation and that's going to be the core of your baseball team again in 2019 you better support it with a nice quality bullpen i think you heard a lot of that understanding yesterday from both jeff wilpon and mickey calloway when they talked about some of the needs for the offseason they named catcher they know they have work to do in the bullpen what difference that i had though i'd like to see this team sign a real good two-way center fielder, a guy that's a, a real center fielder and not Brandon Nimmo or Michael Conforto, kind of faking it over there. Uh, you mean and, you're giving up on Juan Ligaris? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Are well, you? He could be a bench bat, whatever, but you can't trust him to, to play. His ligaments are made out of tissue paper or something I think has been made apparent. But um, do you do you agree with that? Because they talked about a corner bat, Tim Healy. Well, they talked about a few different things. There's yeah. the idea of a corner bat or a right-handed bat, wherever that person is, but Mickey Calloway talked a lot, especially in the second half, about valuing defense, which the Mets did not do mostly for under Sandy Alderson. Uh, defense, uh, center field specifically, that's one of the reasons they signed Austin Jackson, who didn't hit very much, but played a solid center field, and that's why Mickey Calloway liked him. Uh, the, the problem is when you start looking at the available center fielders, there aren't many quality two-way center fielders out there to be had you got to trade for him, I think. Right, right. And that's where I think Pete Alonso gets real interesting. Absolutely. You know, how much value might he have elsewhere? And, and can you land a young center fielder from another team? Yeah, I, I mean, I think certainly it's something you're going to look at. I don't consider it a top priority because I do think the bullpen and the catching are, are much bigger holes that you need to fill. And if you go into next year with the same outfielders that you have, even having no idea what you're going to get with Ioannis Cespedes, I think you can make an argument that you're okay there. Obviously, you can be better, but I think you can make the argument that you're okay. You know, one thing that I do think they should think long and hard about this winter, and Mickey Calloway has alluded to this, is starting pitching depth. And it, it sounds kind of crazy because they had the best starting pitching rotation ERA in the National League or in the major leagues in the second half. But once you get past those top five guys, you're looking at Corey Oswald and then who? And you got. All of these innings and all of these starts out of Zach Wheeler and Jacob deGrom and Noah Syndergaard and Steven Matz, these guys who have historically had very, very high injury rates, can you count on that again? I mean, maybe it's not going to be as bad as it was in 2016, but can you count on getting all of that production out of those guys again? Can you count on a second consecutive Cy Young season from Jacob deGrom, or will there be a little fall-off? Yeah, and, and, and that's a big question. It's a huge season for deGrom, and, and we'll get into what made this season so special uh, for 
let's face it, the Cy Young Award winner in the National League. Anthony DeComo, MLB.com, Tim Healy of Newsday with us. As, uh, we're in the sports zone. Pete McCarthy, Dan Gross on The Voice of New York, 710 WOR. 710 WOR, putting you back into the sports zone. With Pete McCarthy. Now we're hanging out with Dan Gross at tonight, our Mets roundtable. We do this every year after the Mets season. Wrap things up, a 77-win season for the Mets. And uh, we have Anthony DeComo of MLB.com and Tim Healy of Newsday with us. Let's talk about one of the positives of this season and the big positive. Jacob DeGrom, you guys just documented one of the most well-pitched seasons in the last 50 years of baseball. DeGrom was that good. The wins didn't show it. We know the record, 10-9, and but a 1.70 ERA. He was fantastic, and he did it under trying circumstances, Anthony, and never all year, right? He's asked, frustrating, frustrating, frustrating. How frustrating is it not getting any runs, not getting any runs, losing these games? What did you take away at the end of this whole thing about how Jacob deGrom handled what was him at his best and also one of the tougher situations a pitcher can be in? Yeah, well, let's not let's not be under any delusions that he was not frustrated. He was absolutely <laughs> frustrated from from pole to pole this year. Um, so it's impossible not to be, but, but it didn't affect his performance. It didn't affect his performance. And I think that is basically who he is to a T is that he just kept going out there and he had absolute tunnel vision the entire season. And, you know, probably about the beginning of August when it looked clear that he was going to be in the mix for Cy Young and it was him and Max Scherzer at that time were, were the two guys and I remember thinking, like, it's probably not going to be close one way or the other by the end of the year. And you just look at Max Scherzer's history as one of the best pitchers in the game. I figured he would, you know, be the more consistent guy down the stretch and would maybe run away with it. And it was the exact opposite. DeGrom was the more, more consistent guy down the stretch and was one of the best pitchers in baseball in August, was one of the best pitchers in baseball in September, and obviously everything that came before it. So it was, it was really remarkable. I think it it speaks to... You know, his character, I, I would give Dave Island a lot of credit also. He's kind of changed the way that DeGrom pitches a little bit. You obviously saw a ton up in the zone from DeGrom. You saw him working the inner half of the plate, especially to lefties, way more than he ever had in the past. And that was a, a big, big thing for Jacob DeGrom. Um, you know, I wrote a, a profile of him maybe about three or four weeks ago. And there were stories from his youth about people who say he was could be kind of a hothead. And he admitted himself, I was kind of a, a of a hothead as a kid. And there's a story where he pushes his sister out of a window once and things like that. Uh, so obviously he's learned to train that and he's learned to bottle it all up and keep it inside. And when he's on the mound, you see that stare. He's one of those guys that just stares you down and it's it. It's emotionless and that's how he succeeds. I think I think if there's one thing to hold a grudge, it would be getting pushed out of a window. I don't know how that relationship <laughs> evolved over time, but somebody pushed me out of a window, we'd have words, I think. Sister did not comment on the story. <laughs> I wonder why, right? Did you try to call it? I, I didn't have time, unfortunately, okay. but I do actually, I do want to find out the second half of that yeah that talk to her lawyer maybe <laughs> uh how about you know with david wright retiring there is going to be a bit of a leadership vacuum but i know he wasn't around so maybe it's not as dramatic and it's just really the captain retiring but you know mickey calloway was asked who could replace him and he named nimmo conforto and Degrom. and it's kind of odd for a pitcher to be in that leadership ranks but uh, what would you talk about the teammates' view of Jacob Degrom, what he did this year, and and how he's starting to put himself in that part of the conversation, Tim? I agree that it's harder for a starting pitcher to fill that leadership sort of role because he's only playing in one out of every five games. That's the same reason I don't really have a hard time buying into the MVP argument too, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, but as far as 
you know, his teammates view of him, I think it says a lot that as the season went on and as the lack of run support became such a huge narrative, which is a word that I hate, but is appropriate here. Uh, <laughs> his teammates would go up to him and apologize for really being bad on, especially bad on days he pitched. And I think that says a lot about how he's viewed in the, in the clubhouse and, you know, this step he took this season from pretty good pitcher, former rookie of the year, to the best pitcher in the National League, maybe the best pitcher in the majors, uh, is a huge jump. And if he can sustain that next year and is really that caliber of pitcher, then the whole leadership thing, that just comes naturally when you're that sort of pitcher. I think what people don't realize is that leadership in a baseball clubhouse a lot of the time is just born out of respect. You gain that respect. That's why you don't see bad players as leaders that often. You gain that respect on the field, and it's about the way you conduct yourself. It's about the way you comport yourself. And Jacob DeGrom earned that in a big way this year. He's not David Wright. He's not the public speaker. He's not the rah-rah guy that David Wright is. He never will be. I'm not sure Michael Conforto or Brandon Nimmo, while they're both great talkers and good personalities and good guys, I'm not sure they're that guy either. Uh, but but Jacob DeGrom can be a leader. I think absolutely starting pitchers can be leaders. Look at CC Sabathia and the Yankees and the respect that he gets in that clubhouse. You know, I, I think it's about the way you go about your business and, and DeGrom does that the right way and he's going to have the ear of that clubhouse because of it. And you know, when you talk about starting pitching and what's going to be key for this team moving forward next year is really the emergence of Zach Wheeler this year where he was able to put it all together and now finally he established himself as, let's be honest, the top half of the rotation type guy. I guess what remains to be seen is, number one, is he going to be able to piggyback off of what he accomplished this year? Like, has it all clicked? Has it all figured out for him? So next year he's going to go out there and just hit the ground running, and we are also going to have to take into account the health component, which you can't predict, you don't know, but that has been a big part of the Zach Wheeler discussion really since he's been a big leaguer. I buy absolutely that the pitching aspect clicks. I I think Dave Island did an absolutely fantastic job this year. If you're grading people on the Mets, he's one of the few guys I would give an A. I think he did he did wonders with with Zach Wheeler. I think he did a great job with Jacob Degrom. So I absolutely buy in that Zach Wheeler can be better next year than he has been over a full season, you know, ever before. But I'm not sure I buy in that we, we can trust him to stay healthy. And right. that's why I said in the last segment that I think they really need to look long and hard at the rotation depth because they didn't really have, with the exception of Noah Syndergaard early in the year, they didn't really have a point where you lost a guy for a few months and you had to figure it out without him. They didn't have that. And, and most teams have that. Almost every team has that over the course of the year. So if it happens next year and you're not prepared for it, you're going to be in trouble no matter what Zach Wheeler learned over the course of this season. Well, what about Seth Lugo? I, I still think he could be a good starting major league pitcher what kind of opportunity might open up for him depending on how all of this shakes out well right now i don't see much of an opportunity for him in the rotation because he's at best the number six guy on the depth chart if they really like him in the bullpen which they do because otherwise they would need an entire bullpen uh he's probably he might never start another game because he's so good as a reliever right i wrote about it a few weeks ago that you know you a lot of times Lugo and Gazelman get lumped together. So is the two of them. Gazelman, he was okay. Seth Lugo had a much better season. And, and that's not new, the idea that they don't like Gazelman in the rotation. I mean, they were saying that in April, that they preferred him as a Even when he made the camp out of spring training as a starting pitcher, he didn't wind up starting any games right away. 
But they said even then that, you know, ideally we have this guy in the bullpen. And, and I think the biggest difference between Lugo and Gaselman, other than Lugo's performance has been better, is that Gaselman has identified as a reliever. He likes being a reliever. He has no problem with it. Whereas Lugo, every step of the way, has said, I see myself as a starter, but that doesn't mean he's going to get do, the chance. Do you trust either one of these guys, or could you foresee a scenario where, and it's probably, we're going to be talking more about Gaselman in this vein, but as the long term closer of this team? Not as the long term closer, no. Maybe long term. Late inning option, multi inning option, bridge guy, but probably probably not ninth inning guy. And also, you look at the inventory that's out there in the relief market. A lot, whether it's Andrew Miller or or, or some of these other top guys. Adam Adovino in Colorado, by the way, is a big time. I mean, this is a guy who who's able to succeed at Coors Field, which is easier said right, than but done. But you look at the Craig Kimbrell's out there, and you look at these guys. To get one of those guys to sign on, you have to tell him you're the closer. Well, of course. So, so I don't think Seth Lugo is going to have the opportunity, even if the Mets thought he deserved it. Now we'll talk about how close the Mets might be and if they can truly be a competitor next year as we uh, chat about some of what their needs uh, will be this offseason. Coming up as we continue our roundtable, wrapping up the Mets 2018 season. Anthony DeComo, Tim Healy, with myself, uh, Pete McCarthy, and Dan Grasso here in the Sports Zone on The Voice of New York, 710-WOR. Now, you're in the WOR Sports Zone with Pete McCarthy. Now's your chance to win an MLB Network prize pack. Be caller number four at 800-321-0710, and you're the winner. Watch two division series games on MLB Network, plus live coverage before and after every postseason game on MLB Tonight. Again, 800-321-0710. We got MLB Network swag. There's a hat. It's like a plastic solo cup is pretty cool. You guys are on MLB Network all the time. You guys got the swag? You already have this stuff? They just put me on air. I don't get anything. Uh, they don't give you a gift pack or anything like that? that? No. Swag I need, bag? I, I start like they do with the Oscars? <laughs> I have to start talking to some producers there over there. There you go. How about uh, this weekend? We obviously had the, the goodbye to David Wright a, a couple of nights ago. At this point now, what sticks with you about that, Tim? It stuck out in the moment, and it sticks out with a couple of days of hindsight. But when they played a song, a dramatic Captain America song as he made that slow walk off the field and the ovation lasted so long that the song ended and everybody was still clapping and they played some other random song. That's what sticks out to me. It was a three minute, three minute plus ovation. To me, David Wright has always been, uh, he's, he's different than other players and, and he's done this so many times throughout the course of his career. But after everything on Saturday, after the press conference, after he has done so many media things forever, he stood by his locker and leaned against his locker. I think you were there, Tim. Yep. And he just talked and, and answered questions like like you and I are talking right now for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes extra. And he would have kept going all night. He was, It was like you know the after party, the after party of a wedding, sitting at a hotel lobby and just, mm. and just chatting. And you know he's done that from time to time over his career. After the World Series, after they lost, he stayed at his locker for maybe 45, 50 minutes until no one had anything left to ask. And just just talking and pouring his heart on telling what's on his mind. And that, to me, was really cool. It was a really cool moment. It's something that you don't really see all that much anymore from players who come up and they're so media trained from a young age and they're so afraid to to you know let go any aspect of their personality and really let you see who they are david wright was never that way and and uh that will definitely uh, you talk about leadership in a clubhouse that's the type of thing that from a media pers- perspective will be missed and i think that it's also something that he enjoyed he embraced that part of the job and that's why he was so good as a leader of that clubhouse and the team and i think over the weekend like you said anthony 
he realized, you know, because he appreciated it so much that this was probably going to be one of the last opportunities he ever had to stand in front of his locker as the captain of the New York Mets and to be able to speak to the media. I don't remember if he was wearing his uniform or not still afterwards, but, you know, you don't want to take that thing off when it's your last game because you're not going to be able to put that thing on and go out there and do, you know, play like you ordinarily would for how many decades of his life. So I think some of that finality probably hit him to a certain degree. Well, and also he, you know... Talk about going out on, on your own terms, and this obviously was not the terms that he would have dictated, but it was in the sense that he could go into his last game knowing it was his last game. And when you're able to script things in that way, you can step back and soak it in and, and, and think about all the things. Think about your last this and your last that, which you know if you're not sure, you're not able to do. So he was very cognizant of all of that. He was very cognizant that as he was making memories... He was making memories, and he was making the things that he is going to think about for the next 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that was cool to kind of watch him soak it all in and be in the moment, but also be removed from the moment and see it from 30,000 feet. What's going to change for this franchise without David Wright being a part of it now, Tim? And the answer might be not much, I suppose. Well, I'll be curious to see, and we alluded to it earlier, but who steps up as a leader, as a clubhouse voice during good times and bad and in a less uh, meaningful way, who gets his locker? He's got a sweet spot in the corner, <laughs> double locker, a, a right? He's a got like locker the, set up for yep. the storage. Yeah, that's yeah. actually it. Actually, is more meaningful than you think because that no, <laughs> sure, that's a absolutely. status symbol. Those mm-hmm. cl- those the clubhouse locker assignments are very, and I, it wouldn't shock me to see it maybe go unused for a season. I could see that. I, I think that would be a, a big thing for them to give both of them away at, at the same point. It, it, it's not necessarily an ideal location, right? If you were scouting out as a player where you wanted to be, is, is that the spot you'd pick? It's pretty good. It's kind of where everyone's going in and out, right? Yeah, well, but- you can make a quick getaway if you're looking to avoid <laughs> okay. people. It's right on the way out the door. So I, I think anything by a door, whether it's by the door, that David Wright's locker is, is kind of by the door that leads to the batting cage and to the clubhouse tunnel and the dugout. So either that one or the one that goes... Next to the back room with the weight room and the kitchen and all the areas where players can hide. Those are those are the prime real estate. <laughs> all right, all right. Real quick, anytime you get two lockers, it's a good deal. Real quick, Tim, I got like ten seconds. Can this team be competitive next year and compete for a division title? Yes, if they make the right moves. How about you, Tony? Yes, if they make the right moves. <laughs> <laughs> they have to spend. They have to spend this winter. They have to get, like I said, two relievers and a catcher, and I think they will be competitive. Yes. You think that would be enough, Dan? Absolutely. Tampa Bay and Oakland, look at what they did this year. You can't tell me the Mets can't do it if those small markets did. Yeah, and in Philly, Atlanta, they're going to be tough. We'll see what happens in Washington with Bryce Harper, but even if he leaves, Juan Soto uh, leaves them in a a pretty strong position. But, uh, hey, I, thank you so much, guys, for coming in tonight. Uh, Anthony DeComo, MLB.com, Tim Healy of Newsday. It's your first day off after a long season, and uh, <laughs> not enough to come in here and talk some Mets, and uh, we certainly appreciate that before uh, you guys start covering some postseason baseball coming up. Thanks for having us. Thank uh, you. Starts happening soon. And, uh, Dan, great having you in studio tonight and getting to know you a little bit. Had Pete, fun. a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon, huh? This sounds good. Dan Grassa, uh hanging with us uh, all night tonight. All right, so, again, thanks to Tony. Tony DeComo, Tim Healy, Wayne Randazzo, who joined us earlier for Ray Martell, as well as Mark Wiener. I'm Pete McCarthy. Uh, appreciate you tuning in. We'll be back with you tomorrow night, Sports Zone from 6 to 9, right here on 710 WOR.